this is our group, so let's go ahead and get started. We'll get started with a word of prayer, and then we will dive right in. So, Father, we are grateful, God, for the word that we've heard this weekend. We are grateful for the message that John gives us. And uh, I pray, Lord, that um, we would keep these themes in our mind, particularly when we're dealing with grief, when we're dealing with loss, when we're dealing with frustration, with the way life has turned out in ways that sometimes we do not expect, that we could just trust you, follow in your steps, abide with Jesus, and experience the life eternal that he gives us right here, right now in his presence. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, I am delighted that you guys came over to my session this morning. I hope that, uh, I hope that you guys have uh, had a good conference so far, a good weekend so far. I know I have. This has been a lot of fun, and I'm grateful to be uh, here and uh, to discuss and kind of interact with the book that Dr. Reeves has written. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have read the book? In the process. So some of you have completed it. I, I, I know you've read it. You know, some of you are in the process of, of reading it. Some of you are, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, as, a, as an author, nothing makes us feel better than when people uh, not read our books, but buy our books. So that's always, that's always, a, that's always a, a big deal when, when that happens. And, uh, and so it is a good book. It's a delightful book. I've enjoyed it. And I'm going to be kind of interacting with it, but also kind of giving some back and forth and, and taking it a little bit different angle. So when you read the book, you won't hear the same exact thing that I'm going to talk about, but I think there's going to be some significant overlap. But there are a number of key terms and ideas that are used in the Gospel of John um, with repetition. There's words like light. There's words like hearing, like we talked about last night. There's words like seeing, and of course, a very, very important word in John's gospel is the word believe, all right? The word believe. Now, believe can mean several different things, all right? It can mean, as I talked about with my group last night, it can mean something as simple as to believe a fact, like I believe it's cold outside, I believe that uh, it's going to rain tomorrow. I believe various things about the world as I see it and as I experience it. And then there's another level of belief, which is to, to endorse or to approve a kind of belief, to endorse a belief, to, to, to say, I believe this is true and I'm happy that this is true, all right? And I think that there are a lot of people in the world who believe that a God exists. There's a lot of people in the world who believe that, you know, Jesus uh, is in fact the Son of God or that Jesus was raised from the dead, but they do nothing with that belief. They have it at an intellectual level, but maybe they've never taken it to the next step. The next step might be, again, to have positive feelings about that belief, to have positive feelings, to to give a sense of approval, oh yeah, I'm down with Jesus. Jesus is just all right with me. I mean, we live in, of course, the Bible Belt. 
Um, and I think that is changing, by the way. I mean, I, I think that, that there's the, 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 the sort of cultural distance between, between places that were inside the Bible Belt and places outside of the Bible Belt is, is lessening because we are such an interconnected culture and an interconnected society today through the media that we consume, the, the technology that we use, so on and so forth. But there are still people in the Bible Belt who you can come up to and say, hey, you know, you know, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, I'm down with Jesus. Jesus is good with me. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to do anything with Jesus. They had that sort of cultural you know, tie to Jesus, sort of like you know, being a, 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 an Arkansas fan in the state of Arkansas. It doesn't mean that you've ever played for the team. It just means that, you know, yeah, I have some affiliation loosely with Jesus. I'm enthusiastic about Jesus, but that doesn't mean necessarily that I want to do anything with Jesus in my own life. And then there's another kind of faith, and I think this is the kind of faith that really is biblical faith or closest to biblical faith, and it's the idea of trust. It's the idea of trust, confidence, faith. We place our trust in Jesus. It's not enough for me to believe that planes fly in the air if I need to get somewhere. It's not enough for me to be enthusiastic that planes can travel. What I really need to do if I'm going to travel is to get on the plane and fly, to put my trust in the mechanics, to put my trust in the engineers of the plane, to put my trust in the pilot, if I am going to fly, I need to have a kind of trusting belief in faith. Of course, the faith that we have in Christ is like that, but it's deeper and more meaningful. And there is a kind of relationship between belief, trust, and seeing in the Gospel of John. But if you want to see what mature faith looks like in the Gospel of John, it's trusting faith. <laughs> and as we talked about from the life of Peter last night, when you read the story of Peter, it's not like he ever really arrives completely there in the Gospel. I mean, he has his moments where he's, you know, brash and thoughtless and careless and does dumb things. That's why I relate to him. I think we all relate to Peter so much in that way. And then there are moments where Peter gets it really right. He does something really well. He confesses that Jesus is the Holy One of God, that He is the Messiah in the other Gospels, that He is the Christ. And then there He is doing something dumb again. <laughs> again, Peter doesn't really arrive per se, in the Gospels. And I'm not entirely sure when you read the New Testament that he ever does. But that's the struggle that we all deal with in the Christian life. That we're all a work in progress. God has redeemed us. God has saved us. God has made us new creatures in Christ Jesus. We've been born again. All these things are true. We have the work of the Spirit. We can look at all the things that God has done in the past for us but you know what? He's still working on us. He's still, by His Spirit, making us like Jesus, and He will be to the end of our lives, till the moment when we are 
glorified and we're finally in the presence of Jesus, freed from sin, freed from the trappings of this world, but yet mature belief in the Gospel of John, and I think throughout the Bible, is kind of trust in Jesus. Now, there's another thing that you should see in John that I think is pretty important. When you sit down and read a Gospel, and by the way, I would encourage you whenever you sit down to start reading through a gospel to, if you can, take the two hours or so that you need to do so and before you do a chapter a day, read it all in one setting. It's really helpful because you can kind of see the big picture. And, and again, John is a theological artist, if you will. He has this ability to take these words, these concepts, these ideas, and put them together in a kind of symmetry. And, uh, and sometimes people will call the first half of the book of John the book of signs, the second uh, half of the book of John the book of glory. Uh, but what we see in the first 11 chapters of John is an attention to a word that's not really used in a positive sense in other gospels. So. One word that you're not going to find in John is the word miracle. Now, Jesus performs many miracles in John. Let me be clear about that. Um, and John, uh, like the other Gospels, uh, records these miracles. The other Gospels use the word miracle, but John has a special kind of language that he uses. Instead of calling them miracles in the Gospel of John, he calls them signs. Okay, and uh, signs have a special kind of function in our life. You know, when you're driving down the interstate and, and you're feeling very hungry, you see a sign with a man sitting in a rocking chair. You think, all right, now it's time to go get some, some breakfast, all right? Or now it's time to go get some Cracker Barrel, all right? You're driving down the road, you see... A, you see a, a big yellow golden arch. The sign, again, points you to food. You're driving down the interstate and you see a big golden shell. You know that you're about to overpay for your gas, okay? Those are signs that point you to a reality. But the miracles that Jesus performs, the signs here, are given for a very specific purpose. You ever thought about the reason why Jesus did miracles? I mean, yes, Jesus cared for the sick. Yes, Jesus raised people from the dead. Yes, Jesus did these things out of love for people. There's, there's that, okay? That's kind of obvious. But more than that, why would Jesus give people these signs or these miracles? What do you think? Why did Jesus? What's that? Increase to increase faith or sometimes to give them faith that they didn't already have. I mean, oftentimes what Jesus would do is Jesus would, 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 I see your faith, let me give you this. Because you believe, I'm able to do this. But in every instance, what he's really ultimately doing is he's pointing people back to who he really is. He's giving them a sense of his own identity in his own mission. So the reason these are called signs is they point us back to who 
Jesus truly is. Again, this is probably old information for some of you, but when you look at the Gospel of John, the way that it's set up, there are seven signs that are given. Potentially an eighth sign if you count his resurrection and the things that he does after the resurrection. But in the first half of the book anyway, there are seven signs, all right? He changes water into uh, uh, grape juice, I guess, all right? Uh, second, he heals an official's son. Third, he heals a layman. Four, like the other gospels, he feeds a multitude. Five, he walks on water. Six, he makes blind men see. And seven, what we're going to focus in on here, is he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, the point of this was not party tricks, okay? Jesus is not a magician. Jesus is not an illusionist. Jesus is not there to entertain people. Jesus is there doing these things to point to his identity and who he is. Now, let me give you a little bit of setup before we jump into uh, John 11. And I want to just can again kind of compare the way the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, gospels that we see together because Matthew, Mark, and Luke have so much in common and John is, again, sort of the red-headed step gospel, okay? It's over here, it's doing its own thing. But I want you to see that there are similarities and there are differences and some of the ways that sometimes we see these characters are, are influenced by one gospel over and against the other. But we see this description of Mary and Martha over in Luke's gospel. While they were traveling, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice. It will not be taken away from her. So sometimes we, 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 we kind of paint Martha in a negative light because Martha was the one who is, who is up busy doing all these tasks, prioritizing all the things that she had to do before actually spending time with the Lord and just sitting at His feet, learning from Him. And I remember back in the 90s, there was a very popular book that was titled having a merry heart and a Martha world. And the idea is that, you know, we need to emulate Mary here, not Martha. I think Martha kind of gets a bad rap. And, and to be fair, she had a weak moment here that's recorded in Luke. Yes, she probably should have been at the feet of Jesus. But what we see John's story, we see Martha has great faith that is put on display. So let me set this story up here, all right? So there was a man who was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped His feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. And then Jesus said this. He told His disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, because he waited a few days, did not go immediately. But I'm on my way to wake him up. I love Jesus' turn of phrase here, all right? My friend Lazarus, he's just gone to sleep. And now it's time to go rouse him, all right? Then the disciples said to him, Lord, well, if he's falling asleep, he'll get well. <laughs> These guys could be wearing dunce hats, okay? I mean, they're not, they're not the sharpest tools in the shed. Jesus, however, speaking past their misunderstanding, had to plainly explain, saying he was speaking about his death, but that they were thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died, but I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. I want to underscore and accentuate right here. It's really important that they see Lazarus raised from the dead. They could see this sign. Why? So that they would believe, right? Okay. And then, of course, we have this kind of throwaway line here that I think is interesting. Thomas called a twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. All right, we'll come back to that. So down to verse 20. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained in the house. This, this case, it was Martha who went to Jesus. And then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I mean, there's a sense of frustration. There's a sense of frustration that, hey, Jesus, if only you'd shown up, my brother would still be alive. We would still be together. But then she says this, Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Is Martha heartbroken? Yes. Is Martha frustrated? Probably. But she doesn't turn this anger towards Jesus or turn this anger toward God and say, God, I want nothing else to do with you. No, rather, she turns this into a moment of desperation and a plea. She says, now I know that whatever you ask from God, Jesus, God will give you. So Jesus says this. He says, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, I know, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection in the last day. You know, she was, again, kind of coming to the table with this set of Jewish beliefs, beliefs that one day on the day of the Lord that there would be a general resurrection, that everybody would be raised from the dead bodily. By the way, Christians have, have inherited that belief from Judaism. And so they, they believed this, and yes, they expected it. 
But Jesus said, hey, wait a second. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is spilling a lot of his story here. He's telling us about his identity. He is the resurrection. He is the source of life. And a person who believes in him, even if we die, will go on living. Because here he's, he's teaching the seeds of, of what Christians long for and hope for, that we live for the resurrection. The resurrection. And here, here's something to note. It was one of my favorite New Testament scholars says, the ultimate Christian hope is not in life after death. The ultimate Christian hope is in life after life after death. Pause and think for that in about a second. We, we will go on living in the presence of the Lord when we die. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yes, right? But beyond that, we look forward to a future hope when we will be raised bodily, when God will remake this world, new heavens, new earth, and it will be a reflection of what began with Jesus' own resurrection. We're going to live again after we live again after death. Life after, life after death. And that's the hope that Jesus is proclaiming. That's what Jesus is connecting to us. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked that sort of provocative question. Do you really believe this? Do you really believe this? Now, remember going back to, going back to those three kinds of faith. There's the intellectual faith. There's the emotional only kind of faith. And then there's trusting faith all right so do you believe this on an intellectual level yeah okay sure I, I i can believe that i believe that that if we believe in jesus on an intellectual level we can be raised from the dead or do you believe it on an emotional level yeah i'm enthusiastic about it i'm encouraged by that yes lord that's what i want to happen but it has to go beyond the intellect it even has to go beyond the emotions. It has to go to trust. Do you trust me to bring back the dead? Do you entrust your own life to me to raise you from the dead? Do you believe this? And then Martha, again, for all her failures, for all of her shortcomings, she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. This is a significant confession. Of course, we have in the other Gospels, Peter saying something very similar to this. He says that we believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Earlier in John 6, Peter says, Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. But here in John's gospel, 
Martha is the only one who calls Jesus the Messiah. She makes this confession of faith and she calls him the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God who comes into the world. She believes and she sees a significant thing happen here. Spoiler alert, just go ahead and get to the point. Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead, all right? Even though they were worried he might still stink, I don't know, he might have really stunk when he came out. I don't know, he might have needed a bath. I don't know, whatever the case. Lazarus came forth at the command of Jesus. And then we see this. Jesus said to her, Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that, you may, that, so that they may believe that you sent me. Again, notice this connection that Jesus is making. That if you believed, you would see. He's saying, if you believe... Even if you don't see, you will see, all right? But because there are some people who don't believe, I want them to see, all right? If you believe, you will see. We believe in Jesus, of our hope in Jesus, we will one day have our faith made sight. But there are some people who nevertheless, still have to see in order to believe. And that's exactly what Jesus offered up here. All right? After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips, with his face wrapped in cloth. And Jesus said, unwrap him and let him go. And then what do we see here? Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. They saw what he did and they believed in him. Now, there are four types of people who see and believe in the Gospel of John. And I think this is really pertinent to what we see in everyday life today. First and foremost... There are people who do not see or believe. There are people who do not see or believe. These are people probably who are living in darkness, who are oblivious to the things of God. They're unaware of, 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 of God's great display of Himself going on in the world and creation, and they're sort of clueless. But John doesn't really focus in on them. What he does focus in on are some other groups, like those who believe after seeing. Those who needed to see Jesus perform these signs. They needed to see Jesus do these healings. They needed to see Jesus turn water into wine. They needed to see Jesus walk on water. They needed to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They were able to believe after they saw. Now, 
they still exhibit a kind of immature faith. It's, it might be on an intellectual level. Yeah, I believe I, what I saw. I believe what Jesus did. It might be on an emotional level. That's awesome, Jesus. That was really cool. But they've never taken it to the next level, which is trust, mature faith in Jesus. And then there's another type of people. <laughs> Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, What are we doing since this man is doing so many signs? They use the word signs here. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come away and take both our place and our nation. Here you have a group of religious elite talking about the religious leaders who are primarily concerned about their own power. <laughs> They're worried that, uh, that if too many people come along and follow this Messiah, then he will bring down the wrath of Rome on Israel and they will lose everything. By the way, that was a pretty common trend in Messiah has been the first and second century. They, that they would, they would gather a little bit of a following and the Romans would kind of put their thumb down and crush them. Only one of these Messiah types was raised from the dead. But we can get there later. <laughs> They're worried about this. But they fit into a category of this. They see, but they don't believe. They see, but they don't believe. Some people will take all the evidence in the world that you give them and they will discard it and discount it because they have no place in their life of faith. Over the years, I've developed a lot of relationships with, with various atheists and skeptics. And I'll tell you about a friend of mine, his name, I kid you not, is John Calvin, all right? His name is John Calvin and he is a, he's an atheist. We, we, continue to have conversations and have conversations about faith. And one of these days I'm convinced and hope that John Calvin will find Jesus. That's, that's just my, that's my longing. But um, this man, I would, I would go over to his house, and I kid you not, this is a true story. The first time I went over to his house, he'd sent me an email. We'd got connected some way, somehow, through some, some church folks. And, uh, and, and you know, he'd, he'd heard my stuff, he'd read some of my stuff, and... He wanted to have a conversation with me. I think he was solely convinced he was going to convert me. And, uh, and so we, we, we <laughs> had these conversations. And, and so I, I, the first time I went to his house, he had this huge German shepherd who came out and bit me in the middle of me talking about the gospel. <laughs> I went to the emergency room with the blood, bloody gash on my leg from a, from a German shepherd. But I went back. <laughs> And I'm not kidding you when I tell you this. The dog bit me again <laughs> the second time. The, the third or fourth time, he finally decided, well, I'll, I'll, I'll put him in a pen or put him on this side of the house. I'm like, thank you. But we had hours-long conversations, hours-long conversations where I would, you know, he would, he would bring to me all these points of criticism that he had about Christianity, all these points of criticism that he had about Christian faith, Christian subculture, and I'd try to correct misunderstandings. And in some places, 
I would apologize for what other Christians have done and said. You know, there was a, there was a lot of give and take, but I would, I would systematically walk through reasons why I believe. Well, you know what? There, there, there's such good reasons to believe because I, I don't understand how anything could exist if there wasn't a first cause behind everything else that exists. That first cause I call God. And I, I would talk about the beauty and the complexity of the natural world and, and, and the, the odds that are against us coming into existence by a random chance. You can't see this all as random, coherently and consistently. When, when, it, when it seems like it's so beautifully, eloquently designed for us to live our life. And go on through one set of evidence after the other. The evidence for the resurrection. The evidence for all this. And every time I would present a good argument, you say, well, that's, that's compelling. That's interesting. Now let me raise another question. Let me change the subject. Let me talk to you about this other reason why I don't believe. And then I find that there are some people in this world that never have to hear a single argument because they place their faith and their trust in Jesus with or without seeing all the evidence. But some people don't believe, not because they don't have enough evidence, not because God hasn't made it plain to them. They don't believe because they don't want to believe. Their hearts are still in rebellion against God. But then there's another person who's kind of popped up in this narrative. One that's familiar to you, I'm sure. And one that uh, probably gets a bad rap for no good reason. And that's this fellow here. His name is Thomas. And uh, what do we call Thomas? What's Thomas's nickname? Doubting Thomas. How would you like to be, be known as, you know, Doubting Bob, Doubting Michael, Doubting Karen, or Disbelieving? I mean, we, 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 we cast that in a negative light. That's just, kind of a, that's just kind of a sad nickname, Doubting Thomas. Oh, you're the one who doubted, huh? I, I, I could say a number of things here, one of which doubt is not necessarily a bad thing. Doubt is a good thing, in fact. Doubt can take us back to truth. Doubt can help us discover who Jesus truly is. It's important to note there's a difference between doubt and disbelief. Okay? Doubt is something that happens instinctively. As our minds are curious, as we're trying to make sense of the world as we know it, Disbelief, by contrast, is actively saying, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I choose not to believe in you. I choose not to believe your truth. So doubt is not inherently a bad thing. But here, Thomas has some real natural questions because, I mean, let's just face it. All of us would probably be skeptical to some degree or another if we'd heard that our best friend had been raised from the dead. Thomas, who had a nickname, the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. Now, 
over the years, you know, I've heard different explanations for this. One explanation could be very well that, that he was the loner in the group, that, uh, that he doubted because he needed to get away from the rest of the group. He needed to be by himself. He needed to focus. He needed to be alone and away from the disciples. Maybe he was, he was just that ornery and cantankerous. He didn't want to be around Peter. I can't listen to another minute of Peter. I can't listen to another minute of John. I need to be alone. Then there's another possibility. There's another possibility that Dr. Reeves talks about in his book. I think it's actually an excellent, interesting kind of curiosity. One will never really know. But this possibility is maybe, just maybe, Thomas was not hiding like the other disciples. Maybe he was out in Jerusalem doing his business. Maybe he was living without the kind of fear that the disciples were living in. And quite possibly, maybe he was the disciple with Mary at the foot of the cross. Again, traditionally we say that's John, but it's possible. One thing that might be a clue that he saw Jesus crucified was when they came to him and they said, we've seen the Lord. And he said, but if I don't see the marks of the nails in his hand, put my finger in the marks of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A couple of things there. If Thomas were a witness to the crucifixion, he would know that Jesus had marks in his hand, marks in his hands and his feet. He would also know, we don't have talked about anywhere else, that a spear was driven into Jesus' side. So it's, it's a possibility. I, I, again, don't definitively take one position or the other. It's possible that he was out and about when the other disciples were hiding. He was the one who was present with Mary, he was the one who was present in Jesus. That's neither here nor there. He does say this. He says, if I can't see it, if I can't touch it, I won't believe. If I can't see it, if I can't touch it, I won't believe. But let's remember back to something we said in passing in John 11. Just kind of skated over it. John 11:16. Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, "Let's go with Jesus so that we may die with him." Again, this is an indication that uh, that that clearly Thomas didn't have the same fear of death that the other disciples hiding behind the doors did. Let's go with Jesus to Jerusalem. And, and by the way, another thing that, that we could point out here is that nowhere in the Gospels to this point, or nowhere in, in the Gospel of John to this point, has Jesus said, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. He's saying things like, I've got to be lifted up. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And by the way, lifted up imagery in John is is talking kind of in a twofold way about the, the crucifixion of Jesus, that Jesus must be lifted up, but also that the Son of Man must be exalted. 
And, and so there's that kingly language that the, the cross is really the exaltation of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in the Gospel of John. But Thomas is insightful. Thomas understands that if Jesus goes to Jerusalem, if Jesus does this, Jesus probably will face the wrath of not only Rome, but also the religious establishment in Jerusalem. That he is perceived as a threat to the powers that be. And that ultimately, he could probably die. And Thomas isn't scared. He says, let's go so we can die with Jesus. So before we cast too much doubt on Thomas, let's just see that he's a person of character and integrity. And here we have Thomas again. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was finally with them this time, all right? Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Now, don't ask me how Jesus got into a locked room. I don't, know. I don't know exactly the mechanics of how that works. The risen Jesus somehow wasn't bound to space the way that you and I are bound to space. His spiritual resurrection body uh, is, is different from ours in certain respects and like ours in certain respects. I mean, he was able to eat fish. He was able to cook fish. He's able to do these sorts of things. But he also doesn't have some of the same limitations that he had prior Again, whatever that looks like. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And then, knowing, again, exactly what Thomas said, even while he wasn't there, Jesus, being fully God, has omniscience. He knows exactly what to say to Thomas. He says, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless. Believe. Okay, again, this is coming back to the same thing that we see with Lazarus. The same thing that we've seen six other times in the gospel at this point. You can see the sign. Now it's time for you to do what? It's time for you to believe. Not just on an intellectual level. Not just on an emotional level. It's time for you to put your trust in me. See this. Experience this. And again, for all the grief we give Thomas, look at Thomas's response. He says, my Lord and what? My God. My God. He's the first to quote the Nicene Creed. He's there before anyone else to get to this point. Jesus is not only Lord, He's also God. He's the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's God incarnate. And here, He's seen, He believes, He confesses. The guy that doubted the first one to confess Jesus is divine. Maybe we should call him Confessing Thomas. Maybe that would be a better name. I don't know. My Lord and my God. He's gotten it. It's finally clicking. It's finally 
making sense. And again, I, I don't fault him for wanting to see a risen Lord. I don't fault him for wanting to see Jesus back from the dead. But Jesus does give this caveat. He said, because you've seen me, you believe. You've seen and now you believe. Blessed are those who've not seen and believe. Which brings us to the fourth category of folks. Those who believe without seeing. Again, there's people that live in complete and utter darkness, who do not see, who do not believe. There are those like Thomas, like those who are gathered around Lazarus' tomb, who believe after they see. Then there are those who see what God is doing and still reject Him. And then finally, there are those who believe without seeing. And I'll tell you what, this is the kind of moment in, in God's salvation history in which we find ourselves where we, we live and wait with expectation for God to make things right. I'm tired of the coronavirus. I'm tired of the pandemic. I'm tired of saying goodbye to people. I'm tired of, I'm tired of just this whole mess that we're in. That's not just the mess that we find ourselves in in this moment. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of the whole thing. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm tired of death and the looming threat of our own mortality. I'm eagerly longing, expecting, hoping that because Jesus was raised from the dead, I'm going to be raised from the dead too. And so that is my hope. That is our hope. The risen Savior, the risen Lord. I think it's really cool that these folks got to see Jesus do these incredible signs. But think about how much cooler it's going to be for us. One day when we see Jesus face to face for the first time and we finally know what it means to have eternal life in the fullest sense of the word. Only now we only have just these sort of vague ideas. Now we know in part, then we will know fully. We'll know as we are fully known. And uh, one last thing, I, I just think this is kind of an interesting little chart. In the faith journey that you see in the Gospel of John, seeing signs, seeing miracles, are not enough for some people to believe. And you're going to have some people say, I, I would believe in God if only He were to show me a sign. If only I were able to see God. Then we know that's not really the case. That seeing God do the miraculous isn't necessarily going to help you see God. This is from a book called John the Maverick Gospel by Robert Kaiser, but he, he, he says that there's these stages of faith, the people in John. 
people who have an openness to faith, like they're, they're open to the potential that God could be real, they're open to the potential that Jesus could be the Messiah. Or maybe they have baby faith, embryonic faith. They see a sign, they see Jesus do the miraculous, and then they have what they call a sign's faith. And what Kaiser means by this essentially is, as long as God keeps on giving me stuff, I'm good with God. <laughs> you know, as, as long as God's good to me. And you, by the way, sometimes, that, tragically, that's what sometimes fills our churches. As long as God's good to me, but the moment things get difficult, well, I'm going to walk out the back door. But then there's another kind of faith. Having seen what God has done, having experienced what God has done, it's a mature faith that will take you through the dark times, the dark places in your life, and you can cling to resurrection hope. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We have seen Him, we have experienced Him, we cling desperately to that hope. Mature, trusting faith. All right, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, again, I pray that you would help us receive the words that Jesus gives us plainly and clearly, that we would know and understand that everything Christ does is to point us back to you to point us back to the knowledge of you, that we may abide in him and be in a relationship with you. Even in difficult times, even in times of grief, may we see Jesus and see our need for him. We plead these things in his precious name.